0: Head to my website, simonmundy.com, or Amazon, Waterstone, Smith's, places like that, to get your copy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number
1: store or sleepnumber.com. What the research actually shows is that the breach of an attachment system is more profound than the particular incidents. So having a parent who turns away from you when you're distressed or a parent who expects you to take care of them instead of them taking care of you actually has very pervasive long-term effects on your biology and your identity. And that issue of the social structure in which you feel safe is actually a more profound mental phenomenon than particularly traumatic incidents.
0: Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists, and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. This week's guest is a titan in the world of trauma research. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk is a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine and president of the Trauma Research Foundation in Massachusetts. He's also the author of the seminal best selling book about trauma called The Body Keeps the Score, which has been published in 38 languages and read by millions of people around the world. As the title of his book implies, trauma leaves imprints within our bodies and brains that can lead to physical and mental health problems. We're not just talking about individual traumatic events here, like the loss of someone close to us, but something that may feel somewhat innocuous, like not feeling seen and heard while we're growing up. If we don't experience warm and close relationships as children, particularly with our parents, then that shapes our brains and ways of seeing and interacting with the world in very specific ways. And it can have a more profound and long-lasting impact than specific traumatic incidents. Bessel has studied numerous ways that can help us heal, and he splits them into three categories. Top-down, bottom-up, and medicinal. Now, top-down processing involves things like traditional talking therapies and focuses on understanding, cognition, and reason. Bottom-up focuses on somatic body-based interventions. The key insight from Bessel's work is that finding a way to feel safe within our own bodies is key. And so somatic therapies are really important, but frequently overlooked. Medicinal treatment is self-explanatory and is, for example, where SSRI antidepressant medication comes in. Now, this is something Bessel believes is overemphasized at the expense of top-down and particularly bottom-up treatments. So in this episode, we talk about some of the trauma treatments Bessel discusses in his book, including psychedelic therapy and shadow work, which he calls internal family systems. The shadow is a concept first coined by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung that describes those aspects of the personality we've rejected and repressed, typically without realizing it. For one reason or another, we all have parts of ourselves that we don't like or that we think our family, friends or society won't like. So we push those parts down into our unconscious psyches. So shadow work is about getting to know those parts that we've rejected and repressed and reintegrating them. Shadow work's not necessarily hugely well known in this country at present, but it can be extremely useful and powerful. Right, let's get into this conversation with one of the world's pioneering experts in trauma, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And just a heads up, we do discuss some adult themes. Bessel van der Kolk, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Good meeting you. Now, Bessel... I'm just going to hold your book up just so you can see how well-thumbed my copy is. Yeah. It was published back in 2014. I've read it from cover to cover twice, and it's a difficult read, Bessel, But there is um, a quote within the book that I did want to ask you about, which is, we're on the verge of becoming a trauma-conscious society.
1: What's your view now? Uh, yes and no. Uh, indeed, when my my cohort started to talk about trauma we uh, we defined it as an extraordinary event outside the usual human experience and it tells you something about how ignorant we were Uh, today we know that a third of all couples in the us and probably uk also engage in physical violence that one out of four to five women has been sexually assaulted and one out of seven or eight boys have been sexually assaulted the amount of violence that people are exposed to is really extraordinary and it's remarkable how psychology and psychiatry was able to completely ignore that and look for genes and brain chemicals but completely ignore the social conditions that uh, give rise to various forms of mental illness yeah
0: and i know that um that you've been frustrated with psychiatry's approach to to trauma because you talk in the body keeps the score about the three ways to address it one being top down and we'll get into these but one being top down one being bottom up and the third being medicinal so in terms of using particularly for example ssri antidepressant medication which you say should only really be used as an adjunct as an add-on to other treatments that actually get to the root of the issue rather than for perhaps numbing it and yet Psychiatry, I know you think, hasn't quite appreciated the other aspects of trauma.
1: I think it's an understatement. Huh? Uh, uh, you know, I as I write about in my book, I was part of the pharmacological revolution. The hospital that I trained in was one of the birthplaces where people looked at brain chemistry and brain stuff, and sleep and uh, drugs. And I was one of the first investigators of various drugs for various psychic disorders. So I started off being very respectable. Uh, But uh, what was striking to me is that uh, we did the studies that show the limitation of drugs, even though some of them were not bad, they were somewhat helpful. And I go, okay, what else can we do? And much to my disappointment, my profession became addicted to medications. And I know what it is because giving drugs is very lucrative uh, to people. And, and so, but psychiatry, so got in this primitive thing, oh, we know something about the brain. So if we change brain chemistry, everything will be fine. And the evidence clearly is that that's not the case. Uh, and so I wish that more of my colleagues uh, actually continue to be interested in uh, the social conditions that actually give rise to uh, this this disturbances that people Experience and, for example, last week I'm I'm doing psychedelic research these days. Uh, our National Health Institute of Health came out with guidelines for research you'll fund, and they'll only research um, animal models and brain models of psychedelic agents. Nothing about what it does to the minds, what it does to people's perceptions, how it changes people's relationship to themselves. It's all let's just measure chemicals. Uh, that is very a very sad situation, actually, yeah.
0: And psychedelics is certainly something I, I want to talk to you about. I mean, I spoke to Michael Pollan on the podcast very recently and I thought his, you know, How to Change Your Mind book and also series of the same name on Netflix was really crucial. And, and actually, there was only it's a page good. in your book about psychedelics and obviously there's... Only a, paragraph. A, yeah, paragraph. Only yeah. paragraph. In
1: 1914, uh, 2014 was still before but shortly after that i i set up my own psychedelic lab and became part of the secondary world i know
0: we don't want to get too excited but it's still very exciting and we'll get to that amongst some of the other potential treatments
1: but what is sad for me is yes psychedelics are exciting but there are many other things i describe in the book that are equally exciting and that somehow this has become the hot topic and it's a good topic and has major promise but the other things uh i should be muffled away again huh? yeah and i'm glad actually you mentioned that because
0: one thing i want to talk to you that i haven't heard you talk about a huge amount in other interviews for example because there is for example emdr but you talk as well about uh well the way i know it is shadow work and and i think it's um internal family systems and i have actually done a bit of shadow work myself and i found it to be absolutely fascinating in uh-huh. terms of, sort of unraveling those parts so yeah. we'll, we'll get to that so we'll get to the yeah, okay. the treatments good and this begs me to say this which is that the body keeps the score It's a hard read it really is a hard read and you said that you have a a, a respect for anyone that
1: can actually uh, read the book from cover to cover absolutely you know most of my own patients have not been able to read the book It's too triggering for them. And I'm their psychiatrist, like like it's a hard book. And I just admire people who read it from beginning to end enormously. And a lot of people have done it. So when the publishing houses say, nobody reads books anymore, I go, well, that's not my experience. A lot of people really are working very hard to understand things and people will read books if it helps them
0: absolutely and i've read this like i said cover to cover twice uh first many years ago and and again recently over the last few weeks and it was upsetting on many occasions actually and you know and um distressing and so and i'm sure it's a distressing and hard space for you
1: to work in as well yes increasingly so actually uh in that we all have our defensive mechanisms and they used to say well as long as you have a good support system and you have a good marriage and you have some students you get along with it's not so hard and then to go back to psychedelics when i started to run one of the psychedelics labs i had to go undergo the psychedelic experience myself and during that time all my trauma test people came to visit me and i was lying there for eight hours going oh shit! oh my god so I actually got in touch with all the pain that I had been unloaded on me, and actually, um, yes, it is very hard work, and I got, got also to appreciate much more why so many people poo-poo the issue of trauma, because it takes an enormous amount of uh, of courage to actually feel all the pain that you carry inside of yourself and the people you work with it's a very real issue actually
0: wow yeah. and you were unaware uh, of how you would really brought that on
1: yeah i really poo-pooed it i said no as long as you have a good team and you get validated and people actually interview you because they value your work it's okay well actually uh you do become part of it and you do take it in
0: and and i suppose that alludes and And points to the interconnectedness of us, which is really at the root of trauma as
1: well. Yeah, that's a core issue that is not central in our psychological thinking these days, is that we are social creatures. Uh, We have brains in order to be part of a tribe. And most of our brain is, uh, when you have a little baby, they're just pure instincts. They don't care about anybody else. And then slowly, when you see this little baby grow, to become more and more social and adapt themselves more and more to the environment, are more and more able to talk and communicate. We are profoundly social creatures. And if we don't get the social connections, as we know from the studies of orphanages and stuff like that, your brain doesn't develop. Uh, you cannot connect with other people. So at the very core of us is that we need to be able to form uh, safe and close relationships with each other. And uh, all the enterprise in the world is based on that. You know, we have Tesla's because a bunch of engineers were able to collaborate on building an incredibly complex engine. For, huh? uh, yeah,
0: And the obvious relationship that we need is that relationship with our caregivers, typically parents. And that relationship, particularly with the mother, that relationship is foundational in terms of the way we go on and see the world.
1: That's where we start.
0: So, for example, you talk about if we don't feel seen and heard, if we feel scared and rejected, that is the prison through which we will see the world almost inevitably for the rest of our lives, unless we do the work that is beyond just talking about it that doesn't even touch the surface we need to get into that the emotional part yeah. that is the way we will see the world inevitably
1: yeah so the middle part of our brain our limbic system more or less builds a model of the world on the basis of your experiences and that becomes hardwired so this early experience in the first um, whatever number of years of your life give you a sense of uh, you see this when you see little kids they push things and they throw things and they do things What they explore is, what impact do I have on the world and what impact has the world on me? And that is the task of growing up, is to really discover who you are in the context around you. And if you're met with disgust or rejection or uh, abuse, then you feel like, I cause abuse to happen. Kids are very egocentric. And so they will feel like, I. Um, a, a blight on the face of the earth nobody likes me nobody cares for me and that's the legacy that you carry inside of yourself which could be translated into become a very nasty person to other people or at least be a very nasty person to yourself
0: and what about if theoretically here your parents treat you quite, quite well but don't treat each other well
1: well that's that's a huge issue because, again, we are relational creatures and kids have an enormous... Uh, are very impacted by their parents. Actually, I, I watched um, uh, Steven Spielberg's movie last night, his new movie. And it was uh, his parents break up. And he beautifully portrays what the devastating impact that it had on him as, as a 15, 16 year old. And by that time, kids are pretty grown up and have a good identity, but it's a beautiful portrayal about the, the devastation of seeing your family disintegrate. And then who are you loyal to? Uh, who are you feel safe with? What obligations do you have? And many people who see family violence and stuff like that really become caretakers of other people to prevent them from doing terrible things to each other. Uh, I know many school teachers and therapists with a background. But that sense of I'm defective and I cannot do anything stays with them, no matter how many wonderful things they do to other people.
0: Wow. Which again comes back to doing the work on a very deep level. And and again, not just talking therapy, which even that is balked upon by still so many people that really only still touches the surface. And I wanted to say as well, because, you know, I've read some books, um, for example, sporting books, where people talk about the drive to achieve great things or big things, you know, the sort of type of people we put on pedestals. Yeah. And, you know, there's one school of thought that often it's driven by a, a trauma, can uh, provide the necessary energy and power and all that kind of stuff to want to show the world that they're good enough. And then other people dispute that by saying, well, they haven't gone through tragedy. They haven't lost a parent. They haven't been involved in a plane crash. They haven't been involved in X, Y, Z. But actually, trauma can be as profound as those more obvious things just by growing up in an environment, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you may have the material comforts. But if if you don't feel seen, if you don't feel heard, then the trauma that is laid down in that environment can be as profound as something far more obvious.
1: Yeah, so what the research actually shows, beautiful research by uh, Cardinal Lyons-Ruth and other attachment researchers, is that the breach of an attachment system is more profound than the particular incidents. And so having a parent who turns away from you when you're distressed, or a per- parent who expects you to take care of them instead of ta- them taking care of you, uh, actually has very pervasive long-term effects on your biology and your identity. And part of what is problematic right now is everybody calls everything a trauma, but uh, a trauma really is an event that is overwhelming. And there is something beyond that. And that's uh, whether you feel safely embedded in a social structure with people who you know are there for you. And that issue of the social structure that, uh, in which you feel safe is actually a more profound mental phenomenon. than particularly traumatic incidents. And
0: I just want to give an example that popped in my head there from your book, which is going back to the blitz and children who were kept in, in London when, and they would be going in bomb into bomb shelters, they would see dead bodies and burnt out buildings were less traumatized than the children who were sent away to safety in the countryside. And that speaks volumes.
1: Yeah, and that's very important stuff, but it's intriguing to me how our school systems and our mental health systems never really got to really grasp that and understand that, huh? that how the safety of your home and the safety of your school uh, is the core foundation of all human safety and caring and love. Yeah, yeah. And-
0: can we just have a quick talk as well about the phenomenon of boarding school, which you, you spoke about as well? I found this page fascinating because um, i would spoken to one of my guests. He spoke about being sent away to boarding school at the age of six and the devastating impact it had on him and particularly his inability for a long period of his life until he did some excavating work to have an intimate relationship. He's over the age of 50 and he's done a lot of work and he could understand and rationalize that, okay, my parents thought this was the right thing to do. But when I heard him speak, even though he logically understood it, the emotional side was still there. It was still an upset little boy in there. So can you just talk a little bit about boarding school?
1: So understanding why you screwed up does not solve being screwed up. (laughs) <laughs> Something much more fundamentally needs to happen, but having insight and language is useful, but insight and language in and of itself does not do the trick. <laughs> um, so John Bowlby, who I used to know and hang out with a bit, told me that basically every British kid who goes to public school has very traumatic experiences. And he says, but George Orwell's books were really based on his own experience in boarding school. Uh, So, no, I've not gone to boarding school myself, but I've had a number of British friends who do. And Bobby told me that uh, about the basic fundamental uh, trauma of going to boarding school and how he told me that he thought that George Orwell wrote his books about um, all these terrible things he wrote about on the basis of his own boarding school experiences. Uh, And then people get this, uh, it's also happens all the time that when when you're scared, you form this intense loyalty to whoever, whatever part you are. So your school, even though you may have gotten beaten up and raped becomes this amazing place because that takes takes the place of loving parents. And then you, uh, that's the nature of human beings that we want to be affiliated and we want to belong and then maybe people who have heard us become our uh, our models in life
0: yeah yeah these are the people often we put on pedestals uh, yeah. right i mean
1: oh, yeah and, and they may say they may say my boarding school was the best boarding school in the world yeah oh except for little things that you know <laughs> they, they won't go there yeah yeah
0: could you just share your anecdote um to illustrate this point about winston churchill please
1: oh yes uh you know you go to blenheim palace and you see a little note from Winston Churchill to his mom, Jenny, who says, he's six years old, says, Mom, I'm coming home for Christmas and I'll be there. Will you please pay some attention to me? It's just a pathetic little letter that Winston wrote to his mom. And that of course made for the British empire. That's uh, And then once you uh, get hurt, you can also hurt other people. You can sort of... Uh, other other people so it's okay to treat people as inferior because you have been treated as as inferior so yet it becomes part of the culture yeah i think somebody should write about trauma and and the birth of the british empire why did the europeans go everywhere and do terrible things to other people and get all that money and africans didn't um other cultures didn't like what was it about us that entitled us to see that we needed to dominate the world and so everybody else as inferior
0: so imperialism is born of trauma and insecurity potentially
1: one could easily make that point yeah although people have always done it huh? the, yeah it's part of our nature also yeah. yeah
0: do you think that we we are putting just to continue on this thing briefly do you think we as a culture are putting the wrong people on pedestals
1: most great advances uh that human beings made are usually made by by traumatized people and the examples I like to give is Isaac Newton if you read his biography the first two chapters are just horrendous how what an abandoned a beaten up little kid he was and then he hides himself in mathematics he's a pretty weird guy and he creates math and physics uh the other example is J.K. Rowling uh, a very traumatized person and a very had a very tough life until about age 30. And then she transforms it into writing Harry Potter stories. And she gives this unbelievable gift to all of mankind based on her own trauma.
0: As hard as your book is to read, there is that hopeful, the hopeful element of...
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I very deliberately kept that throughout the book. Huh? Uh, and it, I really meant to write it as a book of hope for students who make them want to explore this further and for... People in general, so like, there's more you can do besides taking a pill and sucking it up. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, So many examples of people driven to great things by their trauma, and that quote in the book: "Research is often me-search." Even this book, is it fair to say, to some degree, is born of, for example, your own trauma?
1: Oh, well, it's my my own trauma and my own character. I'm I'm one of five kids, and my none of my siblings are interested in any of the stuff i'm interested in so um we have similar background so it's it's a real complex creature said huh?
0: that's very true right just a few more bits before we get onto some of the the ways of dealing with trauma something that i found very interesting was when you spoke about trauma being typically pre-verbal in other words it can be very hard for people to articulate and oftentimes they may not even have a you know you you ask someone okay are you traumatized and and they won't be able to tell you or they're missing memories and, and all this kind of thing yeah, yeah. but the way that the brain fills in the blanks you talk about an emotional storm arising perhaps they've been triggered by it by something an emotional storm arises that reminds them yeah. of some events that happened way back when yeah, it and- doesn't
1: really and it, and even that would remind is too conscious right As something happens and you automatically react in a certain way but you don't go oh when you talk to a certain way you remind me about that guy who beat me up in school and therefore I get so mad at you like uh, you just pissed me off you don't even know it's happening uh, And it's all because of your fault because you pissed me off and uh, and then at some point somebody may say to you yeah he pisses you off and the next guy did and that bad also maybe there is something about you that becomes hyper reactive let's go there so people usually yeah. don't start working on themselves until they learn some very hard lessons about how their behavior is really interfering with having a life. Yeah,
0: Yeah. yeah. and some people, though, still, unfortunately, uh, and you said we are complex creatures, get stuck in that place of blame. Of and perhaps they're getting triggered all the time, yeah. but they can't let go of that. You burn the sausages, yeah. you don't listen to me, yeah. you don't love me. Yeah. When in fact, it's got nothing to do with the person in front of them. Yeah. That might be their or spouse. Almost nothing. Yeah. nothing. Almost
1: nothing. Uh, so, so when this happens, I like to just look at the kernel of what might set them off. Huh? And then I go, when, how long you felt this way, what do you remember, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's the internal issue of your brain being wired to see pain and insults. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so would you suggest that, you know, when we feel triggered, when
0: we feel uncomfortable thoughts and feelings coming up, shame, fear, anger, Actually, that's an opportunity to, to bring out of the shadows and into the light, something that about us, that, that needs looking at rather than, you know, the typical thing, which is put it away, forget, you know, don't behave like that, etc.
1: That's absolutely true. But the other factor is that when you start coming to the inside is, is there somebody in your world who you would trust enough to manifest yourself with? And uh, that may be very difficult to find. Most people may not have ready access to somebody who'd say, "Yeah, that's a person I really feel safe with, with whom I can talk about it." And when you go to uh, a hospital or a therapist, they may say, "Oh, you shouldn't feel this way," and you get admonitions that f- that give you greater feeling of shame, rather than somebody who really guess, "Oh, so this is really still lurking inside of you," and so. Uh, The insight that I need to do something is terribly important, but also the opportunity to find somebody who can be with you to explore that is the other important thing. And that's also a very difficult dimension. And
0: obviously you talk in the book about what to look for in finding a good therapist, for example, someone who's gone through the work themselves. But also it reminded me of, of of a quote about relationships, which is, you know. We tend to think in in society, oh, uh, relationships is about the romantic ideal. You meet the one, you complete me, you know, we'll pass each other roses over the dinner table until we die, surrounded by grandchildren, all that kind of thing. But uh, a quote I quite like, which is, if you understand that relationships are here to make you more conscious, not happy, then they can be a wonderful tool for growth. Do you think relationships can be that catalyst if you're willing to both do that kind of introspection and work?
1: So, so the, the, the thing is we cannot do it by ourselves yeah i mean everything we do we do together uh, if we didn't have this podcast uh my life would be meaningless and yours would be too and if we had never had this con- communication so so uh every project you do is involves a number of people uh, you're uh, I live in the snow and ice here in, in my part of the world. And we need our road crews and we need to work together to make things happen. And doing something together with other people is intrinsically gratifying. Uh, so having a good team, uh, a good team to raise your kids, a good, good team to take care of uh, surgery and medicine. Uh, our relationships are at the core of our sense of pleasure and joy also masturbation is at the end not all that great to do it all by yourself you know like (laughs) (laughs) the the good things in life are us putting our organisms together and creating something together
0: i think that's a really powerful way of explaining it Bessel. so thank you for putting it in such stark terms actually that just reminds me of something you talk about in the book about intimacy and this is the last thing before we get on to that the paths to recovery but intimacy is that Let's say that, that you had a um, a parent or parents who, who were dismissive or expected you to take care of them or anything like that. And perhaps it led you to developing an avoidance attachment style. But understanding a fear of intimacy is step one, but only step one. Right. Talking about it and understanding it is not going to solve it.
1: If you don't experience or you don't see other people, having a good time together and laughing together, uh, you don't know that's possible. And so you actually need to have experiences where you uh, yourself get an inkling of being relaxed with people and being open to people. God, I would like to have more of this, but I think many people may never have the experience of what it's like to really feel close and comfortable with other human beings. if you don't experience or you don't see other people having a good time together and laughing together uh, you don't know that's possible and so you actually need to have experiences where you yourself get an inkling of being relaxed with people and being open to people going I would like to have more of this but I think many people may never have the experience of what it's like to really feel close and comfortable with other human beings
0: and your paths to recovery in your book, you speak about opening your heart. That is about being able to be truly intimate with someone else. And, and if you don't feel safe in your own body, then you can't do that. So let's, let's um, dive into some of the ways then. So obviously we mentioned it's top down and bottom up. So starting with top down and you talk about part one, which is that ability to find ways to be calm and focused, and then also find ways to be calm and focused when the uncomfortable thoughts and feelings are provoked perhaps often outside of your conscious awareness and so the obvious starting point is mindfulness is is uh, an ability to engage with the present moment in a non defensive manner and so do you think mindfulness or and i've done the for example the 8 week a mindfulness-based stress reduction course by Jon Kabat-Zinn, which I found to be transformative, actually, in terms of being in my body and observing emotions and feelings arise and choosing not to react to them, but responding with intelligence, for example. Do you think mindfulness is an absolute prerequisite for
1: trauma? You can't have a mind unless you're mindful. Huh? If you are not mindful, you're like an instinctual animal who always reacts to the same things, uh, in the same boring way. And so, uh, if you really want to own your life, you need to become mindful. Mindfulness. I, I, I jo- know John kabat I love John kabat but he was, he didn't invent mindfulness. Uh, uh, mindfulness has been forever around forever in every religion in every place. Uh, people have practiced that. And, uh, and of course, Good parents become mindful with their kids and they try to really feel things together and to notice things together and to find language for things together. And so being aware of who you are and having words for who you are is enormously powerful and important. But for example, so uh, Cabin Zinn's program was not far away from my clinic. So I would send a bunch of my traumatized people to his program. And most of them dropped out because, uh, people think the trauma is an event that happened a long time ago, but in fact that event is over and the trauma is really the degree to which, uh, your body continues to react today to the world as if the trauma is still going on. So it's an internal thing. And so when you start meditating, uh, you start coming to, uh, to grips with that internal worldview and that can may become terrifying so a lot of these people cannot tolerate going inside that's part of why i got invented uh, interested in, in yoga because in yoga at least you put, paid attention to uh, touching your toes and twi- twisting your pencil so it gets you inside but it helps you to focus a little bit more on your body then that's the silence of mindfulness, where oftentimes feelings of panic come up, a feeling of rage, a feeling of deprivation, uh, when you have a trauma history, which a lot of people do. And so meditation can be very scary for people.
0: Sure. And you mentioned yoga and you speak a lot in the book about being uncomfortable or not feeling safe in your own body. And I've realized the defense mechanism that I had that still pops up. But I yeah. now welcome it and have respect for it, actually, as a defense mechanism that I learned to keep myself, quote unquote, safe at a time, was going up into my head. Yeah. So going up into yeah. thinking, you know, and rumination and all that kind of thing. So so that does lead to yoga or, or as well, Qigong, for example, yeah. which I tried a mm-hmm. bit of Qigong, which I found very grounding. So yeah. could you just talk a little bit about then yoga, Qigong, and could even something like swimming work as well as a way to get back in touch with yeah. the sensations of your body
1: yeah i think that's that's really at the core that i would say so sort of a core step of beginning to deal with trauma is to have a relationship with your body and experiences in your body that you can feel and so the thing that i happen to have studied is yoga and yoga turned out to be a very good treatment for and we happen to, to study trauma but probably very good for many different things. Uh, But for example, I still would love to do a study of tango dancing as a way of really getting into your body and getting into sync with people around you and allowing somebody else to control you to some degree. I'm fascinated by tango. And you go to Buenos Aires and you go, that's a very traumatized place. People had to invent uh, tango because otherwise they would have gone on there. So, so I love what I see in my travels is that almost everywhere in the world, people discover something that's helpful for them. In Africa, I see people drumming together. Very different what people do in Boston. But, and you see people get in sync with each other, harmony, and you get a sense of pleasure. And so there's probably many different ways in which we can get in sync with each other and get that sense of communal belonging and pleasure yoga happens to be one of them qigong happens to be one of them but i think most cultures have developed something that make that possible
0: now i do talk about sports uh, not infrequently on this podcast and i was just thinking yeah. of of when you were talking about getting in sync of basketball i'm thinking of yep. uh, the yep. chicago yep. bulls yep. you know yep. do you think that is something that could could be a, a way to relieve trauma
1: look the the British Empire was built on the playing fields of Eton. Everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it's obvious, you know, when you're a really frightened little boy and you get to throw that ball and catch it and be part of this this team, it's no longer about you. It's about you and your team. Uh, I mean, these are very profound experiences. My, I, I'm a little skeptical about uh, people who go these extreme exercises, which are usually very individualistic, yeah and. Already for a long time ago, there was some research done that showed that the best predictor of male psychological health is being an integrated athlete uh, in high school times. Uh So learning how to pass that ball, how to catch it, how to set somebody else up. It's not all about you. It's about us together as a team winning. And then you get this in that tense communal feeling of, look, we did it. And if you get defeated, you hold each other, you say, next time you go do better. Uh, So, no, these are very powerful and important experiences. And part of uh, a very dramatic part of trauma is that, uh, as we see it in various pieces of work that we do, is that traumatized people are too scared to get involved with other people anyway. Uh, so we have these programs in various schools uh theatre programs, beautiful programs, effective. We've shown how how good it is. But the most traumatized kids stand against the wall and don't dare to engage. Gosh. Uh, and then people say terrible things about them and say they're awful kids and yeah. need the punishment for not trying to engage. And the question is how do you make it safe enough for these kids to begin to move into the social f-
0: sphere. Right? Because as you pointed in the book, often it's a vicious circle. You're know, you you you're abandoned, you feel yeah. shame, you get rejected, and so on and so forth, and it spirals down. And yeah. actually, just quickly, I don't want to talk too much about this because I want to get on to some other stuff, but you talk even about the power of, of, for example, equine therapy. There was one woman in your book who spent yeah. some time with a horse, and just having a horse who was there every day willing to see but- her really helped yeah. in her recovery so that connection
1: and, uh, and we have actually studied that uh, you know it's very hard to get money to study weird stuff like equine therapy but we managed to get something together and indeed we showed that for particularly for very traumatized people they're scared of everybody but a dog or horse may just begin to build up that passive connection and the capacity of safety between what they call organisms Have having an organism related to other organisms and indeed it turns out that equine and uh, dog therapy uh, is a very helpful piece of the whole uh,
0: which makes me think actually having pets at home must be a you know a, a pretty um valuable thing to have and we've got a couple of cats here
1: you, you know one of the most tremendous things that many people I see have told me I came home and my parents had killed my dog. Oh, course, Or put my dog to sleep. And and people talk about it with more just devastation than almost anything else. Yeah, wow. I grew up in this violent, alcoholic household, but I had my dog. And my dog made me feel safe. And then when somebody does something to the dog, <laughs> yeah. terrible. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Now, um, yeah. amongst the other things you talk about is uh, EMDR. And I, I don't actually want to dwell too much on this, actually, Bessel, because... For example, Prince Harry has spoken a lot about this. And um, I would suggest to anyone who wants to learn about it, you know, to to do some research about it, you you powerfully illustrate how you were skeptical about it as a treatment, but that it it can be incredibly effective. But I know you've spoken about that in lots of other areas. So I want to skip to something where I haven't heard you speak about a lot, which is internal family systems, which you call it. Now, I've done something Uh and I'm going to be open up and be vulnerable here. So I've done some shadow work. And, and it was fascinating to and surprisingly powerful to sort of go into this environment where you essentially split your psyche out into all these different parts that you've some of which you've repressed, some voices which you have uh, picked up that may be yeah. critical voices. You know, there, there was the bad little bad me, the little scared me, the defensive part of me that actually, or um, part of my psyche that actually. You know i I'd, I'd resented but i didn't realize was actually doing so much heavy lifting in terms of of keeping me safe even that what i mentioned before about going up into into my head so could you just talk a little bit about this whether it, we call it shadow work yeah. or internal family systems of how this works and and how powerful it is
1: yeah i, I really think this is one of the major changes in our field actually people get to many people now have accepted that we contain multitudes uh, that we have many aspects and as we talk to each other in a nice civilized context i don't really know you how angry you get how frightened you get how uh, irritated you get because we are at our best behavior and most people know that best behavior part of us and we don't know the other parts but you may sometimes become really angry and or um, I know a lot of people who cut themselves or people who uh, take drugs on the side. I don't know if you do any of these things, but but, but that parts work, the internal family system shadow work shows is that we may have parts that have learned to take care of ourselves in particular ways. And there are oftentimes way that, ways that are offensive or difficult for other people. So uh, we don't know, but you may have the habit of being nasty to some of your junior colleagues, possibly. And then the question becomes, oh, that's a part of you. Doesn't all of you does that, but uh, when you deal with people who are needy and vulnerable, it triggers something in you and you may become aggressive. And so, yes, you have a part that may have that and a part of you that can be incredibly generous and a part of you that gets really frightened, panicky and may actually go home and take drugs. Uh, uh, the secret lives that many people have. And so we contain multiple parts. And then in mental health, people have to uh, say that that's bad, that's a bad behavior. And what uh, internal family systems and shadow work taught us, no, these parts come online to protect you. And they're all parts of yourself that you have developed in order to manage, manage somehow all the pain that you dealt with and was, all these parts start off as protecting you. And then it becomes important to see what were you protecting yourself from? And once you really know, oh, I was trying to protect myself from my older brother beating me all the time, or my mom trying to make suicide, make suicide that's how I dealt it. But, oh, that's a part that was really helpful. And there is something interesting about it. You need to thank that part of yourself yes that nasty asshole part of yourself yes <laughs> gets you into trouble <laughs> he say, yeah yeah that asshole part of me was also useful but 100 now it gets me into trouble <laughs> you know
0: yeah. yeah I mean this was the absolutely yeah. revelatory part for yeah. for me was like I said some of the things that I that frustrated me some of my defense mechanisms yeah. and and I yeah. was sort of trying to bypass that and go to the get to the scared part of me or the bad yeah. part of me and it's actually yeah. no this yeah. part of myself that i'm rejecting yeah, yeah yeah have i have a newfound respect for and and, and sort of and an integration followed and it was yeah. it was really uh powerful and, and surprising so yeah i would really yeah. extol it's lovely to hear stuff. because
1: i totally get that and i think yeah. to my mind the fundamental psychotherapy for trauma is that's work, that internal family systems shadow work, where you get to know the parts of yourself and also appreciate what those parts have done for you.
0: Yeah, truly, it can be absolutely revelatory.
1: Even though they m- may kill the number of yeah. relationships you have had. Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. You're not
0: wrong. Um, yeah. And and listen, the the experience of shadow work yeah. can be a little bit bizarre as well. But uh, I think you've just got to let yourself go. For anyone who yeah. does go for yeah. it. Um,
1: yeah, you need somebody who is very skilled. Right? Yeah, sure. Uh, and who's
0: it's been through it themselves, almost yeah, unquestioned? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. A couple more then. I want to finish on psychedelics, but before that, I want to talk about the vagus nerve yeah. because I've noticed some interesting uh, contraptions coming on the market recently um, that uh, talk about stimulating the vagus nerve. And there's obviously the chanting that in some cultures, you know, China, India, where you know people will chanting "Om," and and I never sort of really knew why. And then became what well, that that vibration of that sound oh yeah you know stimulates the vagus nerve and so can you just talk about you know stimulating the vagus nerve both from an om chanting point of view through to perhaps some of these uh, there's something called for example the sensate that i don't know yeah. if you've heard of the sensate that you could a pebble that you put sort of on your on your chest bone that vibrates and and um yeah things like that through to the old more old fashioned just straight ons
1: yeah you know we have all these apps and these apps are really quite helpful but do people keep using them? Because we basically don't get much of a re- reward from, from a piece of equipment. Our real reward system is a social reward system. And so if I have a feeling we get along and we might be friends if we get to know each other, and you lived in my neighborhood, I'd be much more gratified by you calling me up and say, let's go for a walk than sitting by myself using a little app. And so, yes, a lot of these apps are really quite helpful, but working with a piece of equipment somehow isn't all that gratifying. And I wonder how many people actually start by them and actually continue with them because we are so social, you know, and our reward system is so social.
0: Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. that makes total sense. Which brings us then to psychedelics because. You'd be a madman to do psychedelics on your own, certainly at any significant dose, that's for sure. And I spoke to uh, Michael Pollan, his book, Changing How to Change Your Mind, and also the the Netflix series has been utterly transformative. And in uh, The Body Keeps the Score, you give a paragraph to it, but I know obviously you've become. Yeah, a, because, yeah. In, it was 2014, yeah, but, but. I was
1: just aware of it. But since the time, uh, shortly after that, around the time that the book came out, uh, the psychedelic world asked me to uh, be part of the world. And so my main research these days is in psychedelics. Yeah. And psychedelics are indeed uh, very powerful, but I'm also very worried that people start taking shortcuts and that it may go wrong the same way it went wrong last time. And so in the world I live in, in that regard, uh, we are living through a honeymoon because, you know, as we had do the work extremely carefully, and people who do MDMA, which is my research work, are very respectful of the people with cyber are very respectful of the other people, because nobody is making money yet. But the moment that money comes in, usually things go wrong and people start, start, start cutting corners. And um, at the core of the research we do, which has been extremely effective, uh, is it's all about set and setting. We have two therapists there sitting with somebody. We know each other very well. People blow their minds and go into very painful and difficult things. But our container is so careful and so thoughtful that uh, up to now we have had extremely good results and really no negative results. But that's really because we pay so much attention to set and setting. And when you start taking shortcuts there, you're gonna see bad things.
0: It's interesting you say that. So I did a piece for the BBC in about 2016 um, about psychedelics. I actually really focused on ayahuasca and the increasing use of ayahuasca. And when I did this piece for the BBC, I spoke to a lot of people who had been really knocked off course. And so psychedelics, like you say, the key thing is... Set in settings, so that means that, you know, your state going into it and who you're surrounded by. But can you just talk about what you found out with MDMA, psilocybin, ayahuasca, whatever it may be, in these controlled settings? How much of a difference can it make? Because in, in Michael Pollan's series on Netflix, for example, a guy with OCD, it's so moving to watch this guy. I don't know if you've seen it. He had OCD, and
1: yeah, I've seen, I've seen it. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's a remarkable piece of television. What a difference that can make. So, I mean, it can be that transformative in that shorter period of time.
1: Oh, we, we see that. Uh, we are basically astounded by every single subject that we see in our in our study. Uh, uh, you know, this is one of the most joyful pieces of research I've ever done. Our team, we have a team meeting tonight, and. uh People share with each other how the people are changing, and it's always an intense sense of joy and revelation. Of wow, we never thought this person would get better, and we see really dramatic changes in people. It is really extremely gratifying to see how much people change.
0: And, yeah. and obviously, in 2014, there was a paragraph, and now I'm sure you would, you know, have a whole prob- probably a chapter in that. What's your what's oh, yeah. your what's your vision of the future for psychedelic therapy then over the next ten years, for say, for example?
1: Um, well what i think is going to happen it, psychedelic therapy is very hot it's the hottest topic you know the new york times write about it almost every day you know, so uh so it is what has caught people's imagination i i think it has enormous potential uh Provided that people do it very carefully. And what I see happen already with ketamine, which is the one right. legal substance, is you have these ketamine infusion clinics where people come, they're giving you a little IV, you sit in a room by yourself, and I go like, No, don't blow your mind by yourself. And so uh will we be able to contain it? Have we talked before we started recording ourselves, we talked a little bit about the very gloomy view I have about mankind being able to do the right thing we don't have a track record as human beings of being able to be able to contain very powerful things and not that are out of control but right now it is a beautiful piece to be part of uh, just praying that it will not get out of control yeah.
0: okay just final things Bessel, because i know you've got to go yeah. one piece of advice then for someone who perhaps recognizes or resonates with what you're talking about and and things you know okay i need to look at my own trauma where to start and then also for those of us who um perhaps have children and creating an environment to you know avoid passing too much of the generational trauma on what so two pieces of advice just to finish
1: well i think i think you need to find words for yourself and you need to really say you need to find somebody who you feel safe with to talk about the things that you really would like to hide. And like uh, I, our wife may have said, oh, you know, I, 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 I hate it when you get so angry with, with our little boy or something. And, uh, and it becomes important for us to to find a language for ourselves and think like, yeah, there's something not working the way I'd like to work, which is a very hard step to take because we are supposed to be perfect. And we're, uh, shame is a terrible emotion. So, uh, somebody who makes it safe for you to begin to find language for yourself. And I think knowing about your parts or your shadows, as you call it's also a very good beginning. And then you get to know that part of me makes me always hyper aroused and hyper and makes me think too much. And maybe they need to think about how do I deal with the hyper arousal, the agitation all the time. I think maybe neurofeedback can do this. Or you can start a yoga practice and really get in touch with your body. What I had hoped to do in my book, and I couldn't do it then, and I still would have a hard time with it, is to give a prescription of, if that bothers you, that is the best treatment. And I think neurofeedback is extremely helpful for people. I see amazing results also, but I would not always know whether for you, neurofeedback or psychedelics would be the optimal choice. So it depends on on to a large degree, about who is in your environment, who you feel safe with and you trust. I think that's really where you start and don't fly to Boston to come and see me because that's too far. It's too extraordinary. So you need to find somebody in your, in manchester or birmingham or wherever you are huh, who who your friends say that's a good person is a person you, you can feel safe with huh? yeah so that starts off by talking i think it
0: starts off by talking and yeah. in terms of parents
1: in terms of parents or oh, yeah. being a parent
0: it's um yeah uh, you know advice, but well, advice i think to...
1: again i think the more in touch you are with the pain you carry inside from the time you were a little boy uh, and the more you really feel what impact is having you, the more you actually are able to translate it into uh, really understanding your kids. You know, I think raising kids is extraordinarily difficult. It's not for amateurs. You know, kids drive you crazy. Uh, my my son asked me from time to time so dad when do kids stop being complete psychopaths who will do anything to and i go yeah that's a very good question Like, you know, don't underestimate how tough it is to raise kids and so for us to really stay calm and not become punitive is a challenge uh and and but being in touch with how you were back then and what it's like for you will help you to really more attuned to your kids also and having a partner who helps you also is also very helpful important yeah who's yeah. who's on that same path okay well listen, the best yeah. thank I, you I so it's a, and who was a slightly gets triggered by different things
0: yeah oh yes so, uh, which is inevitably the case in my experience <laughs> by the way uh,
1: so so you can say you are probably. Take care of your kids. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely,
0: yeah. absolutely. Well, listen. All right.
1: So, we'll talk with you. I thank just you. want
0: to say, that, you know, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much yeah. for your book. It's it's profound, and it really has been a pleasure talking to you. I'm very, very grateful. So, thank you. Keep up the good work.
1: Thank you. Okay. Be good. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your guest suggestions, your questions. Just get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. And if you could share this episode with someone you know or on social media, I would be very grateful as it does really help people to find this podcast. That's it for now. I will be back with a bite-sized episode this Friday and another full-length episode next week. Until then, goodbye.